But as Chris has said, my name is Shirley, and I'm part of the teaching team here at UCV. And I'll be continuing our Lenten sermon series today called Walking with Jesus. So, so far we've spent this Lenten season walking with Jesus through Mark 10 and 11 on the way to the cross. And on the way there, we've been talking about different crosses that we may experience. Last week, Matt walked us through Mark 10, 32, 34, in which Jesus tells the disciples about Jerusalem. He says to them in Mark 10, 33, see, we are going to Jerusalem, which Matt explains signifies the suffering that is to come for Jesus. Jesus will be condemned to death, delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, spit on, flogged, and eventually killed. This reminds us of the Jerusalems we experience in our lives. And actually for me, last week's sermon was a balm to my soul, this acknowledgement that suffering happens. So the past couple of sermons, I've been telling you all different stories about my new job. Um, I started working in City Hall a couple of months ago, and there have been some nice stories, like the retirement party that I got to throw for homework, uh, homemaking in my workplace, the moments of connection that I've had with some of my new coworkers. Um, so these have been nice moments at work. But work has also become a place of Jerusalem. From constituents coming into City Hall yelling because of the suffering that they've been experiencing, people facing evictions, gun violence, mold in their homes that the city can't test for. In my limited time at my new job, I think people at my job are trying their best to seek the welfare of the city. But in that, there is Jerusalem getting close to and becoming more and more aware of the suffering of those across the city. And so when Matt talked about Jerusalem, when Jesus talks about Jerusalem, it felt like a balm. Jesus is present in our suffering. The disciples have different reactions to Jesus as he talks about Jerusalem. Some of them are amazed that Jesus continues to walk to Jerusalem some of them are afraid. Two of his disciples, James and John, they ask him about glory. And that's the story we'll be focusing on today in Mark 10, 35 to 45. But before diving into what this means, some context. This isn't the first time that Jesus has told the disciples about Jerusalem. Just one chapter back in Mark 9, a couple of days ago in their journey, Jesus had taught the disciples as they were passing through Galilee what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. That time, Mark spelled out the disciples' reaction. It says, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So the last time that Jesus tells the disciples about Jerusalem, rather than engaging with Jesus about what that meant, the disciples end up having a conversation about greatness. It says in Mark 9, 33 to 37, they all came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? 
But the disciples, they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I don't think it's an accident that after Jesus talks about Jerusalem twice, the disciples talk about greatness. I think in the face of something they didn't quite understand, the suffering that was to come, they turn to their own power and discuss how much of it they have and who has the most of it. As people who also face Jerusalem, we can do the same. As Matt said, we can try to use our problem-saving power to avoid suffering or at the very least try to, like Peter rebuking Jesus the first time Jesus tells them about Jerusalem. Or we can hoard our power, trying to have the most, to be seen as having the most. And we'll see that in today's passage. But before that, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are with us on the roads to Jerusalem. We started off our sermon series talking about what it means to receive the kingdom of God like children. God, remind us that we are your children. Remind us what it means to experience that, believe that, feel that as we walk with you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn to Mark 10, 35 to 45. We're going to read through the passage. You can feel free to follow along or in your own Bibles. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And James and John said to Jesus, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's start from the beginning of the story. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come up to Jesus and they say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Which, as bold as this is, it could potentially be a good question. We started our sermon series off with talking about what it means to receive the kingdom of God like a child. That means independence without status and communicating our needs like a child, like joy. 
So James and John are asking, quite like children, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So Jesus asks them, what do you want me to do for you? And then James and John say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. That is definitely not a request that a kid would make. As James and John ask this, does Jesus think immediately to the cross? Is that the image that Jesus has in his mind as they have this conversation? Probably because he just has told them about Jerusalem. Does Jesus picture James and John experiencing those same things with him? Being condemned to death, delivered over, mocked, spit on, flogged and killed? Probably. And does Jesus' heart break for that? Break for their request to sit in his glory? Probably. Is that what James and John are picturing? Going to Jerusalem with Jesus? Probably not. Because as Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. The disciples didn't know, or at least didn't fully comprehend what Jerusalem meant until they finally saw it and experienced it with Jesus. And at the end of Jerusalem, James and John are not the ones next to Jesus. Jesus foretells this when he says, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And at the end of Jerusalem, the ones next to Jesus were two robbers whose names we don't even know. Is this the kind of glory that James and John had in their minds when they asked, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory? So when it comes to glory, let's be humble about what true glory is. It's something we will never fully comprehend or understand until the end of the story. Second, what was James and John's understanding of glory? I think it was two things. They asked to sit next to Jesus in places that would be seen by others. So recognition, grant us to be seen in your glory. And second, another thing that you would get sitting next to Jesus is power. Oh, no. <laughs> um, recognition and power. What kind of glory do you find yourself asking for? What kind of glory do you find yourself wanting to be seen in? Do you want to be seen as righteous, as someone desirable to know, someone with status, someone capable and productive, someone who is cool in tough situations? These are all kinds of glory that I've wanted in the past or still do want in the present. What kind of glory do you find yourself asking for? What kind of glory do you want to be seen in? What about particularly in the face of Jerusalem? 
Sometimes in the face of suffering, our desire for glory can be even more desperate. It can feel like that's all we can ask for, some recognition, as if maybe that will be a salve to our suffering, or power to avoid and control as much as we can. But Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Instead of communicating their needs on the road to Jerusalem, the disciples ask for glory. Instead of thinking about what they really need, they think about how others can perceive them well. Instead of asking for comfort or courage to face what was to come, they say, we are able to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism. We can face the suffering, give us the glory. But Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. This gets back to the other disciples. When the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Whatever the reason the others are indignant, maybe they are outraged that James and John would think this way. How could they ask for something like that? I feel like that's kind of been me as I've been reading this passage, judging James and John for their request. Or maybe the others are indignant because they are jealous and envious. They want that glory as well. Whatever the reason, this asking for glory by James and John leads to division among the disciples. In facing Jerusalem, do we find ourselves with others or do we find ourselves not, instead judging others, jealous of others, or do we find ourselves with others? Jesus gathers them like a mother hen her brood. Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. What does it mean to lord over and exercise authority? What is Jesus speaking about? The definition of both of these Greek words emphasize the downward nature of this control and authority. To lord it over someone means to exercise downward control over someone. To exercise authority over someone in this case means to exercise downward oppressive authority over someone. To dominate someone, to bring them down. So Jesus is saying that those who are rulers of the Gentiles and one way of emulating greatness is to become someone who has power, a kind of power that dominates over others. This is what happens when we trade dependence, vulnerability, and weakness for power. Rather than experiencing the vulnerability of Jerusalem, our dependence as children we would rather take up power that controls. We see this plenty in gender-based violence, domestic violence, all the consequences of people taking up power that dominates another. We see this in poverty, the consequence of people taking up and hoarding economic power to the point it dominates others. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That word servant in Greek, diakonos, literally means thoroughly and dust. Dia is thoroughly and konos means dust. So this word servant literally means someone who thoroughly raises up dust by moving in a hurry to minister to someone else. And that's who Jesus says we should be. And the word slave, as it's used here in the New Testament, does not mean the chattel slavery we've seen in the U.S. To be slave in this context means to be someone who freely chooses to belong to someone else, to give up one's ownership rights to belong to others. Jesus calls us to move in the direction of service to others and to freely choose to belong to others. We won't be great, nor will we be first, or at least I know that I won't, because I know that I can't be servant and slave to all. So this isn't about switching over to another kind of Christian greatness. But I can move in that direction. I can serve, kicking up dust for others, and I can choose to belong to others rather than controlling them or dominating them. This is what happens when we choose intimacy rather than glory. Rather than desiring others to know us distantly as cool in tough situations, as capable, righteous, right, we allow ourselves to be known in our suffering and in our weakness. And we allow ourselves to be served by others and by Jesus. We also need to choose dependence and vulnerability over power. When we focus on glory and power, on being seen, recognized, we focus on the ways that others regard us, we forget to regard others first, especially those that don't receive regard. We forget the vulnerable among us, like the blind beggar Bartimaeus that we'll meet in next week's passage or like the children we've been talking about that have no status. In Mark 9, during the disciples' first conversation about greatness, Jesus sits down with them and takes a child, puts that child in their midst, hugs the child, and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. As Josh taught a couple of weeks ago, children in that culture at that time had no status. They probably weren't even thought of in the cute doting way that we think of children now. Jesus is telling the disciples and us to receive those with no status, those who wouldn't be seen or counted for much. Receive them and we'll be receiving God. This is what can happen when we choose intimacy instead of glory, vulnerability and dependence instead of dominating power. But this isn't easy in the face of Jerusalem. But again, we hear Jesus say to us, and we allow Jesus to say to us, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. We acknowledge Jerusalem, which is the first step. We acknowledge the suffering. 
and we communicate our needs, independence, and intimacy. So in my job, it's gotten a, lot of, it's gotten a little bit harder these days, um, but I feel like I've seen myself start to also learn what it means to communicate my needs, independence, and intimacy. What that has looked like for me is simply to talk to friends about the things that are happening at work rather than keeping them to myself because I need company in hard things. It has looked like going out and eating lunch with people, taking breaks because I need to not sit in my cubicle for eight hours, and I need to not finish that email if it means that I can't go hang out with someone. It has meant prayer, prayer for the things that are happening in our city, prayer for my coworkers, because I need help from God. So, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. What do you need? At this point, I'm going to invite the worship team back up and give us a couple of invitations as we transition. So, the first invitation is practice holding these images of God. Maybe it's hard for you to communicate your needs to God because you don't think of God as someone who cares about them. Practice seeing God as a mother hen who gathers her brood. Practice seeing God as the Psalm 131 God. I think earlier in the sermon series, we talked about Psalm 131, where it talks about being a weaned child with our mother. Meditate on Psalm 131 for a week. Practice seeing Jesus as a savior that hugs children as he teaches and demonstrates receiving the kingdom of God. A practical suggestion before you pray, pause, close your eyes, and picture yourself being hugged by Jesus. Second, share with someone the reality of your Jerusalem if you haven't. And third, Journal about where you are desiring glory over intimacy and power over weakness. And now I'm going to pray for us before inviting Heidi up. Holy Spirit, I pray that in our remaining time together, in hopefully the week to follow, would we experience you as a God who is near to us? A God who asks us, what do you want me to do for you? A God who acknowledges the particular Jerusalem we may be experiencing. A God who says, see, I'm here with you. And pray this in Jesus' name.